The main thing about a piece of art, wrote the French sculptor Auguste Rodin, is to be moved, to love, to hope, to tremble, to live. The Spanish surrealist Salvador Dali, who never knowingly undersold himself, added, I have Dalinian thought. The one thing the world will never have enough of is the outrageous. I'm Ben Miller. Welcome to Art and Stuff. So this episode is all about putting together two unlikely things. And what happens when you do that? A whale on a bicycle, sardines and custard, a giraffe on your sofa. You get the picture. It can be funny, absurd, maybe even a little bit unsettling. So how about a lobster on a telephone? Today's artefact is just that, and I think it's fair to say that it's one of the most recognisable works of art created in the 20th century. It came out of the Surrealist movement. It's rich with hidden meanings and symbolism, and of course it looks rather extraordinary. I get a spring in my step every time I see the lobster telephone. It's just such a brilliant and economical image. It's done with such a lightness of touch. I absolutely urge everyone to see this lobster telephone and to imagine picking up its receiver and hearing the kinds of strange voices that might emanate down the line. Dali had taken a very everyday, ordinary object and turned it into something unexpected and, for some people, unsettling by giving it legs. A telephone in the shape of a lobster. 1938, conceived by Salvador Dali for the collector Edward James, part of the collection of the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art, Edinburgh. So let's pick up the phone and get talking. Oh, hello. Who's there? Patrick Elliott, Chief Curator of Modern Contemporary Art at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh. We are talking about an extraordinary sculpture by Salvador Dali, which is called Lobster Telephone, and it consists of a household telephone of the period, a white Bakelite telephone, with one of those old ring dial instruments on the front, and instead of a normal receiver on top, it's got a lobster. It's got a plaster cast of a real lobster sitting on top, where you'd expect the receiver to be. So when the phone rings, you would go across to it and you'd pick up the lobster. You'd effectively be speaking into its rear end and the claws would be brushing your ears. It was commissioned by a man called Edward James and he met Salvador Dali in Paris in the 1930s, fell in love with his work, and Dali came across to see him in London a few times. And Dali had this thing about lobsters. I promise you more about Dali and lobsters in a moment, but how on earth do you make a lobster telephone? Other than just, you know, put a lobster on a telephone. I mean, anybody can do that. Edward James had them made by a manufacturer which specialised in furniture called Abbott and Green. So it's not known if he took along an actual lobster and they made a cast after that, or if he took along a plaster one that he might have got from a fishmonger's. Whatever the case, there were 11 of them made, four of them were painted red, and the other seven were varnished. They're white varnished, and they've got the insides hollowed out. They're beautifully made. They've got these little screw holes at the sides, which sort of fit onto the top of the phone, and they've got a hole at the back through which you thread the electric socket that's normally attached to the receiver. You couldn't imagine a better object 
to fit on top of a telephone than a lobster. But how wonderful these phones actually worked. The telephone in the National Galleries of Scotland collection is one of the white ones. But whatever the colour, you might be wondering why put a lobster with a telephone in the first place? Well, it seems that Salvador Dali was rather pro-lobster. Dali had used lobsters in his work. I never thought I'd say that sentence. Dali had used lobsters in his work since the mid-1930s. There's a little drawing, I think it was 1935, so three years before, showing a man picking up a phone and is amazed to see that instead of the receiver, he's actually got a lobster in his hands. And then a little later, he seems to have exhibited a phone with a real lobster on it in America. And obviously after a few hours, certainly a day or two, the thing would start to stink. So that wasn't really a sort of a goer as a sort of permanent solution. And he saw it as an erotic sort of image. It was partly that lobsters are aphrodisiacs, or said to be aphrodisiacs, but it's also in conjunction with a phone, it's that you're speaking into the reproductive parts. And when you know that, it's quite a, a surprising thing to hold in your hand and use. A lot of the surrealists really wanted to surprise, astonish, to subvert the rational, and the lobster was the perfect image for that. Who but Dali could have come up with such an object that looks right and looks wrong at the same time? Hello, I'm Dr Sarah Jackson. I'm an Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at Nottingham Trent University. The Cross Lines Project examines the representation of telephones in literature from 1876 right up until the present day. I noticed that the telephone was coming up in some really unsettling ways in my own writing. And then I realised that I was really interested about the ways that the telephone is represented in other writers' works. So part of this project is an online exhibition. Telephones have featured in literary texts in so many different and exciting ways. And so the exhibition is designed to invite people to contribute moments in text that they've discovered where the telephone features. And sometimes the mention of the telephone is only in passing. And at other times, the telephone is crucial to the whole dynamic of the narrative. When I first saw the image of the lobster telephone, it made me both want to touch it and jump a mile. It's such a tactile object. It makes me want to feel the shell of the lobster to pick up the receiver and to put it right to my ear. But at the same time, the thought of having this lobster close to my face is, is extremely unnerving. The idea of a sort of undersea creature potentially even crawling inside my ear and start eating up all the words inside my skull. It's so horrifying. I immediately want to replace the receiver and, and run away, to be honest. Salvador Dali was born in 1904 in Figueras in Spain. It was a lovely little hillside town just up the coast from Barcelona. Dali was an excellent draftsman. He was also a very good footballer, but he turned towards art instead. He went to the local art school and had an exhibition when he was about 16 and that was well received. Then he went off to art school in Madrid and started playing up in a major way. He just loved offending people. But he was incredibly gifted technically and also in terms of his imagination. So when he went off to Paris in 1928, I think it was for the first time, he's only 24, but everyone can see what an incredibly gifted artist he was. So he joined, officially joined the Surrealist Movement in Paris in 1929. 
And the French Surrealists didn't know what to do with him. He was a sort of young upstart from Spain. He didn't speak very good French. He had weird subject matter, very sort of uh, oddly erotic and often homoerotic. He loved to outrage and shock. It was another reason why the Surrealists loved him. They loved him and hated him. The object sculpture, as it was called, where you picked an object from the real world, often two objects from the real world, and put them together, became a really important aspect of the Surrealists' weaponry. Man Ray took an iron and stuck some nails on the front. Clearly a, a sort of stupid object in that uh, it's an anti-iron in that it would rip your clothes apart if you used it. One other sculpture of that period, object sculpture, Merit Oppenheim, it's a unique work. It's a cup and saucer and a spoon covered with fur. So it looks like something you'd drink out of, but clearly you can't because it's got fur in. But nobody came up with a better image than Dali, that a lobster on a phone can say more about eroticism, the bizarre, all these things that sort of don't come out maybe in conventional paintings. But back to the telephones. I'm keen to start exploring Sarah's collection of literary landlines. One of the very first appearances of the telephone in literature is Jones Ferry's poem, The Telephone, which was composed in 1877, just a year after Alexander Graham Bell's patent. So it's often described as the first literary telephone, and he describes it as the marvel of our age. And he presents it as a triumph over the world of space and time. He really taps into the fact that this telephone can now bring voices from very, very far away. He, in particular, talks about this kind of undersea cable. He says, beneath the ocean, soon a man's voice may reach and a new power be given to human speech. I guess the lobster telephone, one of the other things it taps into for me is the undersea element of the telephone call, that, you know, the history of transatlantic calls would, of course, be through undersea cables. And if you go to the Science Museum, you can see these beautifully encrusted undersea transatlantic cables, and and they're, they're quite lobstery in their own way. I can just imagine Edward James the man who commissioned this work from Dali, on his lobster telephone to the international operator placing a transatlantic telephone call. After all, he was part of a pretty glamorous set in the 1930s, and I don't think he'd have been worried about the cost of the call. Edward James was born in the early part of the 20th century into a very, very wealthy family. His father died quite young, so the money went to Edward quite early on. He was quite a shy, effete young man. He went to Oxford and he really wanted to be a poet. The tragedy is that he wasn't a particularly good poet, but he was friendly with John Betjeman. His first major piece of sponsorship was to publish John Betjeman's poems. And then he went on to Paris and immediately in Paris, everyone sort of pricked up their ears. Who is this English guy with so much money? So very quickly, thanks to his money, really, and he had a good eye for things, he was drawn into this surrealist set. But he had the gumption to spot Dali and Magritte as the two, I think, the two great surrealist artists of their time and buy their best work. We don't know when Salvador Dali and Edward James met, but it would have been in 1934, probably in Paris, the circles they were both moving in. But we do know that they got on really, really well. They both said it, that they both really liked each other. Edward James had a house in Sussex, which he had redesigned by... 
a British architect. But Salvador Dali designed five sofas, the famous Mae West sofas, which are modelled on the actress Mae West's lips. So you'd sit on her mouth effectively. I mean, what a sexually suggestive idea that is. He also had these tall lampstands made out of champagne glasses. And then he would have used these phones there as well. So moving on to the 1930s, around the time that Salvador Dali would have been conceiving of the lobster telephone, um, I want to turn to the work of Evelyn Waugh. Um, it's interesting to note that Edward James and Waugh were contemporaries at Oxford and would have been moving in many of the same social circles. And of course, Waugh's famous novel, Vile Bodies, is absolutely obsessed with the telephone. It relates the story of Adam Fenwick Symes and Nina Blunter, their on-off engagement, which is a conducted almost exclusively via the telephone. Vile Bodies was described by Moore as the first English novel in which dialogue on the telephone plays a large part. And that's certainly true. There's an entire chapter that is written exclusively on the telephone. Wall was spot on in so many ways when he talked about the role of the telephone in this novel. It's not the first telephone novel, but it's a really interesting turning point. And I think it marks a new turn towards a kind of connective sociability that was happening at the time. The lives of these bright young things making social engagements down the telephone wires. So surrealism in the 30s really grows out of another art movement, Dada. If you think of the First World War, millions of people dying, millions come home with their lives wrecked. And there's a group of young artists who blame their parents for the whole mess. And one way to blame them is to rebel against every kind of art their parents and their grandparents' generation liked. So instead of painting, they might use collage or cut things up or explode things, make art out of sounds rather than paint. Their art was really anti-art. In fact, they were anti-everything. But you can't be anti-everything for that long. They coalesced in Paris and they wanted something else to move on to, something more solid. You can't smash art up forever. It was André Breton, who was a poet and really the leader of this group, who looked to the writings of Freud and other psychoanalysts. And in the early 1920s, he started using the word surrealism and it really meant beyond realism. So it was going beyond the ordinary world of perceived realities towards an understanding that there might be something more real in your dreams or in your subconscious or your unconscious, that there was something more to life than just what you saw. I had a feeling that Sigmund Freud might have had something to do with the lobster telephone. Lie back, relax and tell me. Hi, my name is Jamie Ruers. I'm from the Freud Museum in London, the former home of the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. So Sigmund Freud developed theories around the unconscious that helped us to understand parts of our mind that we had never really been able to access consciously before. What Freud was able to do was that he essentially legitimized this irrational side to our personalities. He made it as important as the rational world around us. He gave credibility to our imagination, to our dreams, to our desires, and especially important to the Surrealists, even to our perversions. So the lobster telephone could also be read like a dream. Dolly was famous for his dreamscapes after all, so this would fit in very nicely with that theory. But 
what I found is that it's incredibly funny. Dolly would have the person on the telephone hold it up to their face and there's always, from a sort of Freudian perspective, with a lobster next to your face, there's always that allusion to the castration complex as the pincers could, at any given moment, snap at you. You can see just why Freud's theories appealed to the Surrealists, and Salvador Dali was certainly a fan. In 1938, the same year our lobster telephone was created, Freud, now in his 80s, had moved to London to escape Nazi-occupied Vienna. As it happened, Dali was in London too. Salvador Dali had always considered Freud one of his heroes and had already even gone to Vienna in an attempt to meet Freud. I think the first time Freud was not there, the second time he couldn't bring himself to actually meet his hero and realise that for himself. On the 19th of July, Dali made the journey to North London for what turned out to be a more successful meeting. He was accompanied by Edward James and also brought along his painting, The Metamorphosis of Narcissus, and a document he wanted Freud to look at, a pamphlet explaining his paranoid critical theory. It seems like the two men got on very well, but it does also seem that there was a a communication struggle, possibly because Freud was suffering from deafness on the day and it would have inhibited their conversation very much. So Salvador Dali perhaps was a little bit disappointed with the meeting in that Freud was not able to read his theories on the paranoia critical, but Freud wrote to their common friend Stefan Zweig the next day, saying, I really have reason to thank you for the introduction which brought me yesterday's visitors. For until then I was inclined to look upon the surrealists, who have apparently chosen me as their patron saint, as absolute cranks. The young Spaniard, however, with his candid fanatical eyes and his undeniable technical mastery, has made me reconsider my opinion. Virginia Woolf is another writer who plays with the telephone in really interesting ways. It plays multiple roles in her work. Her characters are often overhearing each other on the telephone. I think Wolf really taps into a more profound and unsettling impact of the telephone. And in Night and Day, she describes how the thread of sound issuing from a telephone was always coloured by the surroundings which received it. But of course, she also says in Night and Day, whose voice? What possibility was this? And, And I guess this idea of the telephone ringing, whose voice is on the other end? What news are they bringing? What possibilities? It can signify estrangement and disconnection. And I think this is kind of alluded to in James's telephone, that that this isn't a telephone that transmits the usual voice. It's a telephone that wakes us up to the unnerving implications of hearing somebody else's voice inside our head. The Lobster Telephone was acquired by the gallery in 2018. Edward James had moved to Mexico during the Second World War, where he ended up creating surrealist sculpture gardens in the middle of the jungle. He's buried now on his Sussex estate, and his gravestone carries the single word, poet. Salvador Dali continued to strike a distinctive figure with his waxed moustache, pet ocelot and controversial artworks until his death in 1989. It's such an important work of art. Often humour is sort of relegated. You know, you put it to the bottom of the division if something's funny. 
I like art that's got humour to it, but this has got more than humour. I think it says something very perceptive about our culture, that things aren't the way they seem. That if you turn things upside down, often you can find a better solution to things. It's just such a rich, inspiring, beautiful object, which has got... It's almost a philosophy. It says something about the 20th century, the sort of upside-down 20th century, the century that's given two world wars and massacres and God knows what. The logical, rational way of doing things isn't the right way of doing things. And Dali seems to have sort of seen that. You look at this and you think, God, you know, that's it. That's the perfect combination of things. The lobster and the phone, that's it. He's done it. That's it. I personally find the lobster telephone incredibly uncanny, and I mean uncanny in the terms that Freud had meant it. So the uncanny was a theory based on horror and dread, so something that we consider familiar but is in some way skewed, much like the telephone becoming a lobster. I love the lobster telephone. I both love it and I loathe it. Not only is it an incredible work of art in itself, but it also draws home to us the strange and unsettling implications of telephony in our everyday lives. What is this object that we hold, often fixed to the side of our faces and rely on for so much of our information? And by transforming this everyday object into this weird, uncanny lobster, I think that we're being invited to reflect on our own lives and our relationship with the telephone. I think Sarah's right. The lobster telephone makes my mobile, sitting on the desk here, look a little bit boring. I mean, don't you crave something a bit more... I don't know, crustaceous? I want to see the lobster telephone on my desk right now. I would like to be speaking to you all now on the lobster telephone, and yet I'm curiously afraid to go near it. I both want to touch it, as one does any art object, and yet it feels so uncomfortable. It makes me feel quite squeamish. I would like to have a lobster telephone in my office not at my house at the freud museum the lobster telephone would actually be very fitting and very much appreciated and contextualized i wouldn't particularly want to have a lobster telephone at home actually i like the fact that you don't see it all the time you can get endless numbers of sort of copies of it you can get fridge magnets of it you can get t-shirts with it if you look online there are billions of variants of lobster phone i think dahlia would have been thrilled about that i think you'd love that it's almost too good to have at home i'm quite happy not to get complacent about it it's nice to see it maybe once a week and just be reminded of how good dahlia was The Lobster Telephone is part of the collection of National Museums Scotland and it's on display at the Scottish Gallery of Modern Art in Edinburgh. It was acquired with the generous support of Art Fund members across the UK. You've been listening to Art and Stuff with me, Ben Miller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and tell your friends. <laughs>